Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, divers. We have a really interesting theme today. I'm really looking forward mm, to our conversation. Too. I think it's something we're going to have a lot of fun with. We're talking about truth tellers, uh, which is a topic I'm fascinated mm, by, and I know absolutely. you are too, Lou. And we've both been reading a few books with truth telling at the core, so I think it's going to be really mm. interesting. And today we also have a book that I've just finished reading. We have a writing tip. We have a life hack, we have some bookish news, and we also have a few non-bookish things that we've been diving into recently. It's been a busy fortnight. It has. So what's the book that you've just finished, Jenny? So I have just finished reading a really good book. I just loved it. It's called The Liar's Dictionary Mm. by Ely Williams, and it's not dissimilar to the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams on the face of it, Mm. in, in as much as it's about the creation of a dictionary, although the dictionary in this book is not as old Mm. as the Oxford English Dictionary. And you think, oh, you know, how can a book about a dictionary be interesting? But this book is so good. It's beautifully written and it has a really good plot. So we have a character named Mallory. She's a young girl in present time and she's been employed to work in the office of Swansby's New Encyclopedic Dictionary, which is a a made-up dictionary. Mm. And it's described as a poor shadow of all of its competitors. And she's working with an older man named David Swansby and he's a descendant of the founder. And they're in an old, musty building in London. I'm picturing lots of attics and basements. Very, very Dickensian building. And they keep receiving horrible nuisance calls, Mm. weird nuisance calls. And she realises that she's been hired mainly to take these calls, answer the phone. And then the other timeline is a young lexicographer working in that same building but in the 1930s. And then the book follows the two characters' Mm. stories and they're quite interesting stories. And then the author has done this beautiful job of delicately connecting things in the modern story to things in the early story. And the allusions to the earlier story are so deft that they're barely there. There's just a suggestion of something or a word used and and if you're really paying attention, Mm. you, you sort of think, oh, that's connected back to the earlier story. It's very clever. It's a great book. It's got unrequited love. It's got a mystery. The nuisance phone calls escalate quite significantly mm. to a very dramatic point. There's a very sinister character, which I really loved. And then there's a great twist at the end and a few smaller twists. So I, I really loved it. I thought her writing was just superb. Uh, so I really recommend that one. It was gorgeous. I've, I've actually bought it as a gift for two friends. I've not read it myself, but I knew that it would be a great book just yeah. from reading a little bit about it. And so I bought it as a gift for two friends and they both loved it. Oh, so, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, I think it's really good. I'm going to lend it to people. It's gorgeous. I loved it. And I'll read more by her because I think she's really good. So that's The Liar's Dictionary by Ely Williams. So today, Lou, we're going to be talking about people who tell us what we are or who we are. I call them truth tellers. Yes. And I'm always drawn to stories about truth tellers, people who hold a mirror up to society, people who show us who we really are, comedians who do that. They do that in a really clever way. I love stories about the emperor's new clothes. Mm. I love stories about whistleblowers and what happens to them and artists who manage to be a part of the world but can also see things with a clarity Mm. that others lack and then communicate that back to us. And confront us with it. Yeah, I think that's incredibly clever. Mm. And I'm equally 
are fascinated with gullibility and what people will accept or take on face value. Mm. So in my breakdown of it, you've got the people who see everything with a clarity and are not really taken in by it and, and sort of can stand back from it. And then you've got the people that are in the mud and, and are gullible and sort of take things on face value. And yes, and how relevant is that today? So relevant. <laughs> and they're just as fascinating <laughs> yes. to me. So the book that really prompted us to think about doing this topic is one that we knew was coming up and it's called mm. No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood. We didn't really know much about it, but there was a bit of hype and I, I've been sent a copy by Bloomsbury. I'm usually very wary of hype, but sometimes hype yeah, is really justified. Absolutely. And, oh, my goodness, this book oh. is amazing, isn't it? It is absolutely incredible. I just want to say how much I want everyone to read. Yeah. It will appear as a challenging read if you pick this up in the bookshop or the library and you read the first page. You will be a little bit challenged, I think. Oh, yeah. am I really going to? Oh. But please persevere because yeah. it's a beautiful book. It's so good. Yeah. So Patricia Lockwood wrote Priest Daddy, Too Much Acclaim, which I haven't read but I now need to get my hot little hands yes. on that one. And I knew this was going to be a, a mirror-holding-up book uh, just from the reviews that I'd read, but I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know how she was going to do it. And I did find it, I think the word I would use is disorienting. I found yes. it a bit disorienting at mean. first. Yeah. It's made up of lots of short paragraphs that don't necessarily connect to one another and they're broken up by little three little dots between each one. Most of them are. And so you never know quite what you're going to get in the next paragraph. Yes. There's not the flow that you get from reading a novel or at least not to begin with. No. And it's written in the third person. So we're, we're told about she did this, she did that, she did the other. Yeah. And it's a woman who has become... A social media yes. icon. Yes, yes. She's posted a question on social media, can a dog be a twin or can a dog be twins? And it has, you know, pushed her into the stratosphere of, of social media and she's now become this sort of, she has a huge following. Huge following. Yeah. And you get the impression has been invited to mm. speak on podiums and in yes. panels and travel yes. the world and she's become quite famous yes. because of it. So she's quite an interesting protagonist. And I don't know about you, Lou, but when I was reading this, I was just assuming that this was a completely made-up character. But now I've come to the yes. complete opposite view and yes. I think it's yeah. very autobiographical. Yeah, oh, hugely, hugely. Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, I, I saw that the London Review of Books referred to it as Patricia Lockwood adjacent. Apparently that's the phrase you use. Oh, I love so that. So it's Patricia Lockwood adjacent. So it's a I, very woke phrase. Yeah, that's <laughs> but Evidently that's, yeah, it, it, it is so clearly autobiographical. Yeah, no okay. Question. And I assumed that her father was a minister in real life, but in this book he's a policeman. He is. Um, in real life he is, apparently he was able to exploit, I don't know the actual religious phrase in Catholicism, but he was able, able to exploit a loophole in Catholicism or the law, I've forgotten the name, it begins with S, I'm not Catholic, our listeners will know. So he, yes, he was able to become a married priest. Oh, okay. He was also a gun-toting Kind of, he was. It's a very interesting character, father. Well, I mean, priest daddy is obviously okay. Priest so daddy she's made is, him a policeman in this yeah. one. So she has changed a few things, yes. interestingly. Yes. Or he was. He's an ex-policeman. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So I, I thought it was brilliant. I loved the way the book starts out with all these sort of short paragraphs that are like a Twitter post. Mm. And you never know what you're going to get in the next one. And you have to sort of reorient yourself every time you read one because it might not relate at all to the previous one. But you start to get into a flow. Yeah. And they're a little bit jarring at first. And you think, gosh, is this going to be an entire book just made up? Jumping between of posts. Paragraphs yes. that don't connect to yeah. And I, I did at one point think, oh, this is quite hard work because. Yes. And I think you and I talked <laughs> at that point. Yeah, didn't we? we did talk at that point. And I thought, oh, gosh, this, this book is hard work. Mm. 
I don't feel like I've got into a flow with it. Mm. And then slowly and imperceptibly a story yeah, she's emerges. Very clever. And mm. then you realise that you're not reading disconnected no. paragraphs at all and it becomes a very fluid, she creates story. She's able to create, I think, a momentum that's woven between those uh, ostensibly Twitter posts of a character, of, of this woman and her husband and her family, and there is a momentum. So she does move forward and you begin to think, oh, she's on a plane and she's going to Finland or she's appearing next to a, a psychologist in Toronto. And so you you, yeah. you get a sense of her yeah. life. But as you say, it's quite imperceptible and it's and it but there's enough of a thread yeah. that it moves a story and you feel that there is a character blossoming there. Definitely. Yeah. 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 It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because no none of the topics that she has chosen as the posts are off limits. There's no topic that's off limits. And so I think that's part of it is that the posts that she's included are richly ironic, some of them. And the character is not entirely gullible because she sees the irony in yes, so many has, of these she posts. she has the insight. Yeah, she she's can't intelligent. do anything about it. No. She's hooked. She is hooked. Like we all are, so into it's the a, algorithm. It's a mixture of ridiculously inane things but also some very serious topics as well. Yes. And it's almost as if it's those serious things that are keeping her in there. Yeah. Mixed in with all this sort of inane stupidity. Yeah. I mean, I love, <laughs> I love that she describes the place she is inhabiting and where these posts are all appearing as a portal because for me and for our generation a portal is it's kind of something you step through into another world I know that's self-evident but sometimes it is hard to go back yep this idea of a portal and you also become something different when you go through a portal it's very kind of that's true doctor who absolutely or narnia yeah (laughs) and i know those things are self-evident but we really do have to think it reflect on that about social media i think the idea of a portal yeah and also by making it something else by not just calling it twitter or instagram or whatever it puts a little bit of a wall up between us and what we're used to and makes us think more about it in a more objective sense. so true that is so true i think we're reflecting on it whereas Social media is otherwise just automatic for us. Yeah. We're not really yeah. reflecting on We would just on, go, oh, yeah, well, that's Instagram. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Whereas well, this makes you reflect on the process yeah. very much, doesn't it? Puts it at one remove. Yeah, and she has this wonderful phrase where she describes the portal as the place of great melting where it becomes important whether you called it pop or soda growing up, whether your mother cooked with garlic salt or chopped real clothes, and whether you had real art on your walls or posed pictures of your family in front of fake backdrops. So she's able to capture that essential part of social media where the insignificant becomes monumentally significant. Yes. And I think we we know that, but we forget, don't we? There's another lovely point. At one point, her husband gently tries to speak to her and you can tell (laughs) that he's tentative. So you, you kind of already know the dynamic of the relationship. And he's trying to distract her and ask her what she's doing and and she becomes irritated and she describes as looking up at him with a blank gaze and she responds, does he not see that my arms are filled with the sapphires of the instant? (laughs) And I love her choice of the word blank there because she's almost in a trance, isn't she, at times? She's sort of like a slave to the portal. Yeah, which we all are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, of course, as we know, she visits Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and and that also means that she's gathering in for us the odd social event or bit of information about what's happening in those countries. And and there's lots of things that everyone will recognise. There's Brexit, there's obviously... Trump. There's there's lots of yes. little things that are happening in different countries, and I, I mean, you and I have talked about this. We did stop and look up a few things on Google. I had and, to Google quite a few yeah, things to try and work out what she was referring because to because of my age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't. And I, and yeah, I have to say there were so many things where I thought I've picked up on this because I am on Instagram a bit, and I know that, that you know. There was a big thing at one point about whether people wash their legs in the shower or whether they just let the soap wash over their whole body. And, you know, it became a big, it sort of became like leg washing gate. (laughs) 
and she mentions that. Yeah, she says something like so. And I'm standing under the hot beds of the shower, washing my legs, aware that not everybody does. And yes, I think there must have been a hundred other references yes, to were. things that there I were. just missed. Yeah, it's very clever, and there will be a generation of readers who will read that book without having to look yes. up Google. <laughs> just readers younger than us. Yes. Yeah, but it's. I don't want that to put people off because it really because is. Because it's still really, really good. You know, it's yeah. superb. Yeah. So I thought I would just pick out a few parts of it because they were just so good and I think they, they give such a good flavour of what the book's like. So at the beginning, which sort of sets you up for what's to come, she writes, she lay every morning under an avalanche of details blissed pictures of breakfasts in Patagonia, a girl applying her foundation with a hard-boiled egg, (laughs) a Shiba Inu in Japan leaping from paw to paw to greet its owner, ghostly pale women posting pictures of their bruises, Mm. the world pressing closer and closer, the spider web of human connection grown so thick it was almost a shimmering and solid silk and the day still not opening to her. What did it mean that she was allowed to see this? Mm. Mm. And again, the juxtaposition of yeah. the ridiculous and yeah. the deeply yeah. important. Yeah. And, the, I mean, the writing is just mm. so beautiful. I just thought that was that, and that you sort of think, aha, so this is going to be about her experience of going regularly down and being drawn every day down the rabbit hole mm. of social media. So that sort of set it up for me in terms of what what to expect. Mm. And then I just absolutely loved the bit where she went to Melbourne. Yes. And she treats you with quite a bit of intelligence. So she just says, as the albino Joey was lowered into her arms and you immediately know, oh, we're in Australia. Yes. At the wildlife rescue in Melbourne, blah, blah, blah. And she goes on and then she talks about the popsicles that were known as golden gay times. Yes. And this exchange... I think is a very good truth-tellery moment. She says, America is very racist, yeah, the driver asked her on the way back to the city. Very, she said, and began to explain. But he held up a hand and shook his head. We see it here, he said, every day. The police are always killing those people, even when they only steal something small. Yeah, yeah. And those sort of things just made me stop. I had to stop all the time and just, they took my breath away, yes. some of them. Yeah. They're so yeah. good. Yeah. You're almost on a roller coaster, I think, yeah. with her because yeah. you don't know what you don't topic know. she's going to pick yeah. next. But she has curated this book that is so profound in so many ways. And just telling us who we are. Mm. There's another one that she wrote, and she does get into politics a bit because this book is written just after the 2016 election. Yes. And she wrote it in lockdown. But this paragraph I thought was so good. Every day we were seeing new evidence that suggested it was the portal that had allowed the dictator to rise to power. (laughs) This was humiliating. It would be like discovering that the Vietnam War was secretly caused by ham radios or that Napoleon was operating exclusively on the advice of a parrot named Brian. (laughs) I just think she really gets the ludicrousness of us. She does. She does. Uh, she does. And I love the way that Donald Trump's called the dictator. Yes, the little dictator all the way uh, through. He, she never <laughs> mentions him by name, which no, is which no. is which And is she's excellent. terribly depressed about yeah. the, the presence of the dictator. But I think the sentence that absolutely for me was the the chunk of gold in the whole thing was this one that she talks. She's talking about it's obvious that her father is a Trump supporter yes, and he probably he believes mm. that coronavirus is a, a made-up thing. He's probably a, an anti-vaxxer. He probably believes in the flat earth. Yes. Or you can yes. tell yes. she's made comments all the way through about how she said to her mother, Dad seems very red and the mother thinks she means red in the face. Yes, <laughs> yes. So you can tell there's a real issue with the father and there's yeah. a real disconnect with the father. And then she talks about, she says, the future of intelligence must be about search, while the future of ignorance must be about the inability to evaluate information. 
But when she looked at the smoking landscape of fathers laid out by cable news, it seemed no longer a question of intelligence or ignorance, but one of infection. Someone a long time ago looked at the big grey wiggle of American fathers and saw them as what they were, just weak enough, the mass host that would carry the living message. Mm, <laughs> you just yeah, how sort of brilliant. How so brilliant. clever. So well. So insightful. So well written. Yeah. So that little phrase about uh, the future of ignorance must be about the inability to evaluate information just said it all for me. I just thought it was brilliant. So we're not going to talk about the second part of the book because we no. absolutely do not want to go into spoilers other than to say that it becomes much more like a novel. Yes. And each paragraph is is much more cohesive and it becomes all about one thing and it's about a family event. Yes, which causes her to sort of take a right turn. And pulls her really out of the portal, yes, doesn't it? Yes, it does, absolutely. But it's interesting, though, because those bite-sized pieces remain in the text. I mean, the structure doesn't absolutely, change. Absolutely, no. But it's more about emotion. They're effectively posts about what's really going on and I yeah. guess what's really important. Yeah. It's interesting because... I have to say, maybe just returning initially to the first part of the book and reflecting on the writing, you know, as she is dipping in and out of the portal and she mentions an item of news or a comment or or any issue, in fact, and then she might jump to a conversation she's having with someone, like it might be her, her podiatrist or it <laughs> might be a text she receives from a family member. It did make me quite anxious, and, I, and I'm not an anxious person at all, but I think it was this sort of jumping, yeah, you know, and obviously that's an accurate reflection of life lived in social media. Yes. Um, but it, I did feel the anxiety of the immediacy of quite hysterical information sometimes. Yes. And I've never experienced that before. So what would you say was the cause of your anxiety? Did you feel like things were going to go wrong for her or was it that you never knew what she was going to raise next? Yeah, it was the uncertainness of the information drop, I think. It was just, it was the jumping. It was the jumping from topic to topic. And yes, maybe there was a bit of anxiety about the interest that people had in something that was just so ridiculous and absurd as well. That also made me sort of yeah. a bit anxious. Okay. But it, that's sort of, it's that bite-sized life. Yes. And, of course, she's travelling a lot and she's jumping all the time and I just it's no way to live. It's not good for your brain. No, it's not. I think that's what it is. I think that's why when you read a book, if you read, sit and read a novel, uh, this is something I find all the time, it's much more soothing because you get drawn into the story. It's one cohesive line of thought. Mm. And I think it does something to your brain waves. Mm. You sort of relax into mm. that mode and you and you can go into that state mm. of flow. There's no way you're no. ever going to get into no. flow no. on social media. No, there's nothing linear about it. No. And I think that that's it. I mean, I you know, I know that's quite a traditional way to look at things, but I'm not used to that constantly jumping between different. Um, and obviously, I read news and I you yeah. know, and I do look at social media and yeah, yeah, but. I think if that if you are totally absorbed by that, what is it doing to people's brains? Absolutely. Scrambling them. Basically. Scrambling them and also raising feelings of envy and inadequacy yes. and comparison. Yeah. And not knowing what's next. Yeah. You know, that that of itself. So I think she was quite clever there. And feeling of a need to keep up. Yeah. Because the, w- the way she's done this, it's all about the latest thing, the yes. latest trend, yeah. the latest yeah. obsession. And people judge themselves by whether or not they are up to speed with that yes. latest thing. Yes. And so you're constantly having to stay on high alert. I mean, it's like you're like a dog. Yes. You're on high alert with your ears up yeah. waiting what's, for the next what's thing. What's the latest thing? And I need can to be on top. I, can yeah. I create the latest yeah. thing? I want to be. Yeah. And like she created the latest thing with yeah. her. Can a dog be twins? <laughs> and, 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 you know, imagine what that does to a generation. Yes. Well, we know what it does to a generation. We do know. Yeah. And it's not good. Um, there was one. And we've talked about the writing, which is just perfect in every way. It's just superbly written. And I think for you and I to have that response to this book, which are these bite-sized pieces of random information and still say this is so exquisitely written. She's profoundly gifted. She is really, really gifted. She's very gifted. But I I love this because I think this is quite a, a good way to finish because she says 
Every day, attention must turn, like the shine on a school of fish, all at once towards a new person to hate. Sometimes the subject was a war criminal, but other times it was someone who made a heinous substitution in guacamole. <laughs> it's just brilliant, isn't it? It's just so true. I mean, that's it, isn't it? That's it. Who are we hating this week? It sums it up perfectly. And yeah. the turning. The con- it's that constant turning, yeah. turning, yeah. turning, turning. Yeah. I'd be very interested really to see if there's any studies done on what that does to the brain because mm. I don't think it's natural. That's not how our no. brains no. work. And to give the same weight of fury yes. and rage to a war criminal, to someone who puts, you know, corn in the guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> just we can't maintain those yeah false yeah boundaries I it's, think that's so true yeah oh my goodness oh I loved it I yeah I, I did too I'm going to please read my, it everybody and it's only about 200 on. pages so yes it's, it's not it's, it's not, not a hard read it's at all. not a hard read at all and and, uh, and it's the, oh, the finish is beautiful yeah this did make me cry yeah me it's, too full of humanity and what is really important it's in deeply life. deeply moving. Deeply, book. deeply moving. Mm-hmm. So, so touching. I mm. just absolutely loved it. I think we've probably given more of a flavour of the first half of the we book. We have. We have. Because we don't want to talk about the second half. Yeah. And all I think we need to say is the second half is beautifully written, it's personal, it's real, mm. and it's profoundly moving. Yes, yes. So, so that's uh, our fan rage. That's our fan, fan rage. We, we loved that book. We yeah. loved, loved it. So what was the other one that you read that's sort of a truth-tellery book? All Lou? right. So I read Tipping by Anna George, which is published by Penguin, which was sent to me. Thank you very much. Anna has written a couple of crime books before and she's worked in television and this is a change of genre for her and she's sort of openly said she wanted to write something lighter and that's exactly what this is. It's a light-hearted novel, I suppose, about gender politics within a family and at school and in the broader community. So I'll dive right in. Olivia, Liv, as she's known, Liv Winsome has arrived on a Saturday morning at Carmichael Grammar, which is the school her three sons attend. Uh, and it's a prestigious co-educational Bayside school in Australia. And it's costing them a fortune to send their three sons too. Uh, and she's with her husband, Duncan, and one of their 14-year-old twins. And they've been summoned to a meeting with the headmaster. And she knows what the meeting's about because the night before she's received a call from the mother of a girl who attends the school complaining that Liv's son, Jai, one of the twins, um, has been part of setting up an offensive Instagram account um, which features some of the girls at the school and they've posted inappropriate sexual comments about the girls and they've rated them. And by the way, this is something that Jai denies. But all of this is immaterial in the first instance because in a moment of distraction as she is finishing a call in the car, her husband and son have gotten out of the car and they've locked her in the car. (laughs) And she's beginning to panic. It's a warm day. There are lots of people milling around her because it's school sport is on and she's frantically trying to get someone's attention. And she reflects on her husband's behaviour, their marriage, their domestic arrangements and, you know, being forgotten. And it becomes sort of a metaphor for what is wrong with her life. (laughs) And at that point she hits a tipping point and that's hence the name of the book, Tipping. And from the get-go you get a sense of the school, the headmaster greets her husband warmly with a blokey handshake and merely nods at her. And then after the headmaster has interviewed their son, which is a process in which her husband takes no interest whatsoever. The headmaster comes to a decision and it turns out that their son's best friend, Blake, is expelled. But the headmaster doesn't finish the meeting without making inappropriate comments himself about the girls and the pictures to her husband. And this creates sort of a sense of unease in Liv and it's not long before she notices that the school is very much governed by the patriarchy. Mm. and there isn't a senior sort of female teacher in sight and that's obviously not very good for the girls at the school and as a mother of only sons she's pretty sure it isn't very good for them either so she sort of embarks on a quest and I guess that's what this book it's her sort of humorous light-hearted quest I've seen it described as domestic activism to reform the gender equality in her home 
and also at the boys' school. And she gets her, it's a lovely scene early on in the book. I'm not giving any spoilers here. It is a recent release, so I'm not going to talk about it a lot. Um, She gets her boys, her three boys and her husband, to write a list of the things that they do around the house. And she's going to write her list and they're going to get together for a family powwow. And hers is nine pages long. (laughs) And theirs barely covers half a page. Uh, And, you know, there's a huge cast of characters in this book. You know, there's teachers, mums, kids, and, you know, they all are involved at various stages in her trying to mobilise change at the school. And then there is inevitably the impact and the fallout that this has at home. And I think anyone, you know, who's part of a busy family, working parents, families with hormonal teenage kids, you'll find this instantly sort of recognisable and relatable, you know, wherever your kids go to school. And there's also some neat, predictable stereotypes in there as well. I'm loath to criticise I do think there's rather a lot too much going on in this book, uh, just too much detail, and maybe there didn't need to be as much. I didn't entirely buy the plot relating to her husband. It seemed a bit far-fetched to me. But, look, their lives do become quite fractured and her and her husband are off pursuing their own agendas, so maybe I'm being a bit unfair, you know, maybe... Maybe that is believable. But, look, it's a funny contemporary book and ultimately it's a positive book. And so does it end on a positive yeah, note? Yeah, it does. It definitely owns on, ends on a positive note, Okay, particularly for the family. To be honest, I was interested that Anna George has got a background in television because, oh, I, for yeah. me, this definitely lends itself to a television yes. adaptation. And so I, I guess that's my last word on it. A lot of people will find it relatable and enjoyable and, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see that as an Australian uh, TV ad- adaptation. Yes. It's perfect, actually. Yeah. And perfect for this moment. I mean, we're it just is. seeing Very so much, much of this, this moment. Yeah. In Australia at the moment. Yeah. Where women are becoming very angry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and with good justification. Yeah. And, you know, institutions like schools, have to get on board yeah, and are possibly, in some cases, possibly a bit behind some of the corporates and some of the other institutions. You know, there needs to sort of be a wholesale stock take of so many issues, I think, gender issues, and schools are just one place where that has to happen. And and I I think she's, she's definitely brought that to the fore. Yeah. Gosh, so much needs to change, doesn't it? Yes. And what about you? Uh, well, as you book? know, I started tipping and thought, no, this isn't for me. So I just happened to have another book uh, that Bloomsbury had sent me and it's called Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. It's set in America. It's set in New York. I think this is a book that I, I don't actually think I would have enjoyed it quite as much pre-pandemic, but because I think it might be categorised as speculative fiction but frankly you know after the 18 months that we've all had it all seemed completely possible to Mm. me so the setup of it is quite interesting it's a white married couple and their two teenage children that live in New York and they decide to rent a house on Long Island Mm. for a week's holiday and the house is, is in a very remote part of Long Island. There are no other houses nearby. It's obviously quite rural. And this is quite a glamorous house. It's fully furnished. It comes with a beautiful pool and a spa or what they call a hot tub, I think. And on the second day of their week's holiday, they've all been swimming. They've been to the beach. A couple knock on the door. It's a black couple, mm. a little bit older than them, claiming to be the owner's. And they seem distressed and they want to come in to their home. Oh, wow. And stay. And so, you know, that's quite a, a challenging uh, event because you think, my goodness, what's going to happen here? Mm. <laughs> but the interesting thing about this for me is that this has sort of happened to us in reverse many years ago mm. where we had booked a private properties house in Margaret River and we arrived on a Friday night in the dark quite late. We'd mm. left work and we had the kids in the back and the house was all lit up mm. and the owners were there. They came out 
and it was apparent that they were staying there and they hadn't let the agent know (gasps) or they didn't care to let the agent know. And the man, the husband, was completely rude. He was really rude to us and really horrible. But you'd paid for it. We'd paid and booked for it through a reputable company. uh, company And we've never had this problem before Mm. or since. And he was quite aggressive towards us. And you could tell the wife was quite embarrassed and she was sort of muttering behind him. So we just basically, we didn't even get out of the car. Michael just got back in the car and we just got the hell out of there. And then we had to go and make alternative arrangements, That's which terrible. was actually really difficult yes. at the time. Yeah. So to read this where, you know, yes. the reverse is the case mm. I'm picturing, because we often do this, we rent a house yeah. down south. The image of the owners pulling up yes. or people saying they're the owners and you don't know yes. and saying, well, we're the owners of this house and Things have gone very badly wrong in the city and we're very worried and we need to come in and take refuge here is not actually all that far beyond my uh, understanding. So I had no trouble understanding this scenario at all. So the book sort of ends up being sort of an end of civilization book and I'm not, mm. I really don't want to give any spoilers away about it but I've, I've sort of got to say that much and I think that's on the on the back Roxanne Gay is quoted as saying this is an exceptional examination of race and class and what the world looks like when it's ending oh. not at all different from the world we are in now oh. so you do know that when you yes. when you're reading it but the interesting thing about it is that it's very calm. It's a very measured book. And at no time did I feel any panic reading yes, it, okay. which I have felt when I've read things like Cormac McCarthy's The Road oh, yes. or oh. any of those other sort of apocalyptic books. So I don't know if that's just me mm-hmm. and I've become inured to yes. apocalyptic events since the pandemic or if it's the writing. I wasn't going to, from what you initially said, I, I didn't pick it as apocalyptic. So that's yeah. fascinating. It is it is absolutely fascinating. So there's not a great deal more I can say about it. It's a very interesting story about the dynamic between this couple who profess to be the owners mm. and the people who have legally paid to have possession of the home mm. and just little things like, Who's going to get up and make a cup of tea? Or who's going to pour the drinks? Or what are we going to have for dinner? Because they mm. do let them in. Who's the host? <laughs> who's the host? It's That in yes. itself was fascinating. And they're not telling the children what was going on mm. because they wanted to sort of save them and then the children sort of gleaning. Mm, this is a bit odd, but they sort of take their lead from the parents, which is what yes. often happens. Yes, always happens. Yeah. Uh, but the big issue about this which I think is the common thing with all of the books that we've done, is the reliance that these characters have on their phones. Yeah, okay. And phones come into all of these books. So we've got social media in No One Is Talking About This where she's glued to this uh, shiny thing in her pocket. Yes, we've got the Instagram texting scandal in Tipping. Yeah, where they've created accounts on their phone and everybody's got their phones at school and blah, blah, blah. And then this one is... The same issue, really, the importance that our phones have in Mm. our lives. These characters in Leave the World Behind cannot function without their phones. And what happens is that there seems to be an electrical or an event that, that has occurred in New York and there is no television news, there is no internet connection they can sort of see the start of a post saying that there's been an outage, but they can't open up the post and read the rest of it. So they have no way of knowing what's actually happened. They can't tell what the weather is going to be. One of the husbands says he's going to drive back to the town Mm. and see if he can find out what's going on. He can't even do that because he, there's no GPS and they don't have paper maps anymore. (laughs) They don't have a street directory like we used to have. So, so it's he, a real reliance on that. He gets lost. Oh, wow. Because he can't even figure out where he is in this sort of slightly rural area of Long Island. And these sort of issues of not having a phone, mm. uh, that no one can contact any mm. of their family, like <laughs> our absolute reliance on our phones yes. is something we don't even think about mm. now because it's all fine, except when, you know, your provider goes offline. I know in Australia recently, a friend of mine said her 
service went out for seven hours the other day and that would be like this happening. Um, but I think she had Wi-Fi. She could still access it, but it just wasn't as easy. So I really loved it. It's a, quite a short book. It was only about 230 p- pages, beautifully written, really beautiful writing and really gripping. So uh, that's the Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. Excellent. Now, Virginia, do you have a life hack? I do have a life hack. It's good. It's a life hack that's probably more for women than men. <laughs> and it's probably could be seen to be quite a shallow life hack. But I have discovered that there's a website where if you know what colour foundation you wear in one brand and you want to buy foundation Ah. and in this age of pandemic you can't get testers and we're all buying things online so you can't go in and get tested. You can type your foundation into this website, the brand and what colour you already have and it's called findation.com, not foundation.com. Fantastic, findation. And it will come up with hundreds of colours that are right that for you. That is brilliant. Who even thought of that? So I don't even know what's in it for her, but I have got that on my thing and it's just so handy. Well, I mean, she's advertising all the products, so she probably gets sponsorship. Maybe, maybe, maybe she does. The, yeah. But that's fantastic. Yeah. And also what a fabulous service that's providing because not everyone can afford to buy a you know, $70, $80, $90 foundation. Yes. Some people want to be able to go and yeah. use Maybelline or whatever yeah, yeah, from yeah. the supermarket or whatever. Yeah, it's exactly. fantastic. Yeah. So that was I that's love a good that. little tip. That's a so. great hack. Yeah, that is that's a, a great one. hack. We should just mention that a few people have been making the scrambled eggs yes. with the butter. <laughs> and loving them. Yes. Hopefully not eating it very often. But. Yeah. No, there have been some very positive reactions <laughs> to the silky scrambled eggs. Thank you, Zachary. <laughs> So do you have a writing tip for us? I do. I do. We've been featuring, of course, um, How to Be an Author, which is the book by Georgia Richter and Deborah Hun, which is sort of helping would-be writers with the business of being a writer in Australia. But as we've said, it's got, it's a, you know, it's a font of information for any writer, wherever you are. Uh, And I just thought I might talk a little bit about finding your voice which is a phrase that you often hear. Yeah. Uh, and it's sort of, I think a new writer would sort of really feel a pressure. Yes. You know, finding your voice. And so they have some sage advice here. As an emerging writer, you may be struggling to develop your voice, that intangible yet palpable melding of style, spirit and focus that is unique and distinctive, identifiable by others as running through the writer's body of work yet capable of growth and variation over time. Well, that just fills me with anxiety, to be honest, because that's raising the standard, (laughs) yeah. Finding a voice can be fundamental to facilitating the writer's control of their process, and as the author's responses below suggest, finding one voice assists in establishing confidence and enabling progression. That said, finding a voice will take time, so don't panic if it does not emerge overnight. And then I think what is really useful are the fact that in this book, whatever topic they're talking about, they've got genuine, real authors saying what has worked for them and giving some really practical advice. So I just want to mention something that Holden Shepherd, who is a West Australian author here, and he, he gives some really good advice. He says, read books and authors similar to how you think you'd like to sound. And learn what works for you and what doesn't. That's great you know, advice. Very yeah. basic, simple, yeah, but it's excellent. Now, then, this one I think is really interesting. Write a regular blog. Ah. This enables you to practice writing often, but without the pressure of completing a whole novel. And along the way, you will organically discover what you sound like on a page. That's great. I reckon that's really good. And then this final one, he says, write like there are no sacred cows. Forget what your spouse or family or friends or boss or your God or whoever would think about what you're writing. Just write how you feel. Not only is this liberating in a personal sense, but it also often unlocks an authentic voice because you're not trying to make your manuscript good. You're just trying to write honestly. So I think they're really good practical tips from Holden. And he, he says those three steps have all helped him discover his own authentic voice, which was originally missing from his first manuscripts. And he 
quotes a phrase which is often attributed to the American jazz musician Miles Davis. Man, sometimes it takes you a long time to sound like yourself. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, really good, really good. So that's about finding your voice. That's excellent, Mm. yeah. And it's certainly true that writers do have one. Yes. When you're looking at from the other end, when when they've already been published. But to automatically automatically assume that you would know what your voice Mm. and that you would be able to perfect it on on the first day that you sit down to write your And that you would be instantly unique Mm. and, yeah, so I think that's Yeah, no, that is good. That's excellent. Now, I think you've got some bookish news. I do have some bookish news. I just thought this was fascinating. There was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald yesterday and I had seen a post on Instagram from Mm, Virginia Penguin. (laughs) saying, and they had this blank book that just said Brittany Higgins. Ah. Um, And for our overseas readers, Brittany Higgins is a young girl who worked in Parliament who has made allegations of rape. And that in itself is bad enough. But the way the alleged rape was handled or the, um, the incident surrounding it by the government has just been causing women in Australia a lot of angst. Yes. Because... We all think that things need to change. Mm. So I was just fascinated to see that she has been paid $250,000 or it's that's an estimate. I don't know if people actually know the exact mm. amount, but they know what the other bids were. There was a bidding war between Alan and Unwin and Hachette. Yeah. And she ended up choosing Penguin because they were not going to make her finish it by Christmas. What um, the others were? Well, is this for one book? This is for one book. So the article, this is what's reported by this journalist, and it says that she didn't choose to go with Penguin solely because of the amount, but they were going to let her, you know, take her time mm. writing it and that she wasn't going to be under any pressure to have it finished by Christmas. So I, you can draw your own conclusions about what the others were, yes. were wanting. But the article's quite interesting. I don't, I don't know where they get this information, but they talk about the fact that Julia Gillard, who is an ex-Prime Minister of Australia, the first female Prime Minister of Australia, sold her book, My Story. She sold 77,000 copies across three editions for Penguin. And a former Australian of the Year, Rosie Batty's book, A Mother's Story, and that's a story about domestic violence Mm. that resulted in tragedy. That's sold close to 50,000 copies across two editions mm. without taking into account e-books or audiobooks. And there's another author there whose book sold 35,000 copies. So I had no idea how much authors were paid for books. No, I, I, no. Know, and obviously it's their salary, you know, you know we yeah. don't need to know, but I just thought this was an interesting insight into mm. the publishing world and their expectations, and, and also they're banking on this being... Huge seller. And very popular. Yeah, and, and the very fact that the article suggests that maybe other publishers had suggested a time pressure, Yeah, you know, in terms of them selling it, they want it yesterday because yes, it's this, such a live issue at the moment. It's such a current so issue. So they want it out... ASAP because they want to capture the sales now. Yes. So I can see that there's the tension there. Which explains why Penguin posted this picture of a blank book, which I've never seen before. No. Often you might read an article where a journalist says she's been asked to write a book and this article mentions that Grace Tame, our current Australian of the Year, Mm. I think has been approached but she wants to wait until the end of her term. Yes. Australian of the Year. Yeah, fair enough too. And I think they might have even mentioned in the in the Instagram post that you could pre-order the book. There you go. That's interesting as well. Yeah. So they're really trying to cash in on a moment. So it's all very interesting yeah, and particularly in the light of the fact that we have a, an election coming yeah, up we next sure year. Do. We sure do. And this do. book will probably come out yeah. around the time that and, the election's announced. And without wishing to diminish her circumstances at all. It is just one of a number of uh, live issues yes, relating yes. to this at the moment yes. in Australia. We've got several 
yes. inquiries, investigations yes. across multiple I th- institutions. If, I think if you look back historically, I think Brittany was the catalyst. Yeah, I'm sure she was. Because I think she was the catalyst Absolutely. for another allegation yes. to be made and then other people came yeah. out of the woodwork and then... And the timing of Grace Tame becoming Australian of the yes, Year. It's kind it, of compounded everything, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And people have an interest. And then the journalists have all sort of doubled down, yes. which they really have, yeah. particularly a lot of female journalists. Yes. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. And I think I probably would find that book, I probably would buy that book and yeah. read it because I'd be very interested to see what uh, she's got to say. And, you know, I hope that it, it really is a quite apart from, you know, the alleged incidents that uh, happened with her, which, um, you know, on the face of it, utterly dreadful. It's also a young person's impression of being in that place, that yep. sort of conservative yep. white male place that is Parliament. So yep. it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Mm. So what else have you been diving into lately, um, A couple of things. I was doing a pile of ironing the other day, which is unusual because my husband's the ironer in the household, but <laughs> I was doing a pile of ironing the other day. And I watched a delightful little comedy drama film, which is directed and written by the comedian Amy Poehler. Oh, okay. From Parks and Rec and from yes. various other places. And it's called Moxie. And I'd say it's aimed at teens and young adults. And look, you know, I hate to say it, but it probably would appeal more to girls. But I hope lots of boys watch it as well. And it'd be a great movie to sit down with your teenagers and watch together. It's the story of a shy 16-year-old called Vivian and Amy Poehler plays her mother in the movie. Right. And Vivian publishes uh, an anonymous zine criticising sexist behaviour and misogyny at her high school. And she's been inspired to do so after discovering her single mum's feminist roots. Oh, that sounds really good. I'm mentioning it because it's kind of like Tipping, the yes, book that yes. I mentioned. It's a movie that celebrates, I suppose, grassroots activism. Yeah. You know, the message is an extremely hopeful one of girl power. Wow. And it's just delightful. You know, oh. there's, there's no brain strain. It's just a really okay. delightful, uh, and I think Amy directed it and wrote it as well. So that's Moxie. She's so talented. And that's on Netflix, very recent release on, on Netflix. And then the other thing that I've been diving into is a new podcast. I say new. It's not new. It's new for me. You mentioned in an earlier episode, Virginia, the divine Edith Bowman, oh. who hosts the podcast about the Netflix series The Crown. Uh, and she really gets under the skin of the crown, doesn't she? She kind of interviews actors, but the researchers and the wardrobe designers. Oh, it was just the most wonderful podcast. It really was. Uh, her research is really, really good. And she gets the best people. She so that. does. Mm. She's really good. So my new favourite podcast is another Edith Bowman podcast. In fact, it's her main gig. Yes, I think that's why she got the job. I do too. Crown. I agree. And the research that she sort of, you know, demonstrates. This is called Soundtracking. It's been around for a while. I think she started in 2018. Look, we all know the capacity of music to move us and transport us back to a place or a memory. And, you know, how many times have we been listening to music and said, oh, isn't that the theme to, you know, whatever? Oh, yes. So if you love music and you love movies and you love soundtracks, this is an absolute cracker. As the name suggests, it focuses generally on the soundtrack and the collaboration between the composer and the musicians, usually with the director of the movie. Uh, although she does occasionally interview actors as well. Look, if you don't have time to listen to the whole back catalogue, you might like to sort of scroll through and pick a movie director or a composer or a a movie that you're interested in or a score that means something to you. And what's great is that you also learn, of course, all the other projects that they've been involved in that you weren't aware of. One of my favourites of all, is the interview that she does with the legendary Spanish director, Pedro Almovar. Oh. Uh, and he talks mostly about his collaboration with the composer Alberto Iglesias on the score of Pain and Glory and all the other legendary composers he's worked with. It's just really incredible. And it's not just indie movies. There's commercial mu- movies. And so she covers the whole range. And it was interesting because on the weekend we went to see the movie Supernova. 
which is uh, with Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth. And that's the story of a couple, Tosca and Sam, who go on a road trip after Stanley Tucci's character, Tosca, is diagnosed with early onset dementia. And Tosca is a author in the movie and Firth's character, Sam, is a pianist. So there is a lot of oh. music. They're driving through the Lake District, Rolling Hills, and there's a lot of silence in the movie other than the score which I love. And it really, having become obsessed with this podcast soundtracker, I really am alert to the music in television and, yeah. and, and movies. And so I went so down a little bit of a wormhole and the composer for Supernova is a young English folk rock musician, Keaton Henson, and a lot of his music is part of the score to oh. Supernova. And then because, of course, Colin Firth's character is a pianist, he does at one stage play Elgar's Salut d'Amour, oh. which is just magnificent. And wow. I'd like to know about Colin Firth learning to play the piano. I don't know if he does naturally play the piano or wow. whether yeah, he learned it for know. the movie. But um, So that's Soundtracker. Highly recommended. It's I my new favourite. Um, the one with Sophia Coppola. That's yes. the one I most yes. recently listened yes. to. So I've been cherry picking them because a few of them I haven't seen the movie, but mm. it, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. They're no. fascinating they interviews. Are fascinating. And to approach a movie from the perspective mm. of the score enhances the movie mm. and the stories. Mm. I like it. I've it's never just a thought of that prism way. to look at yeah, the it whole is. thing. Approaching so it from that different lens. It's incredible. Yeah. 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 Great no, podcast. And Edith Bowman's accent. Her voice is beautiful. Her isn't Scottish, Scottish accent. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And she's so at ease interviewing, you know, like really kind of famous yeah. directors. Yeah. And she's not, just a chat. Yeah. She's it's, just, everybody's the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I love Fabulous. her. I think she's fantastic. What else have you been diving into? I've got a podcast that I think you'll just love, Louise. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone who's a murderino or who loves anything to do with sort of true crime, or, this is called The Dropout and it's a podcast about Elizabeth Holmes who started up a company called Theranos. Ah. And they're not very well known in Australia because it's not a company that appeared here. So I knew zero about mm. this. I have seen the book that an author has written called Bad Blood. But this podcast I saw a mention to Elizabeth Holmes somewhere else and when I was scrolling through my podcast I, I saw her and I thought, oh, this was meant to be, so mm. I started listening to it. So it's only six episodes. I've done five. I've got mm. one more to go. I don't mm. want it to end. Just for Australian listeners, Elizabeth Holmes was a 19-year-old girl. She's now about 37 and she did two semesters at Stanford University and dropped out mm. and she set up a company called Theranos. And the podcast opens in about 2017 with her giving testimony in front of 12 attorneys at a government inquiry. Mm. So Elizabeth Holmes said when she was 19, she decided she was going to develop technology whereby a single tiny drop of blood could be used to test for anything and for multiple tests, and then antibiotics could be delivered through that same patch. It's called a microfluidic patch. Wow. And anyone who's had cancer or had any sort of long-term illness knows that it can become very burdensome to have repeat blood tests. Oh, yeah. And... This woman was saying, I can develop a system or a patch whereby we take one tiny drop of blood and it can do 50 tests. Mm. And more than that, we can deliver antibiotics through that patch as well. So it means not having lots of cannulas, not having lots of collapsed veins, all yeah. the ports, all that sort of thing. But at the start of the podcast, a doctor is interviewed and she says, it's not actually possible to deliver antibiotics via a microfluidic Mm. She doesn't really go into details, but she says it's the nature of antibiotics mm. that it isn't actually possible to do this. And she says this girl, you know, basically did one course in microfluidic whatever biology and decided that she was going to mm. change the world. So the podcast then goes back and looks at Elizabeth Holmes and her family and who she is and 
then sort of comes forward and, and you sort of follow mm. what happened with it because a lot of people lost a lot of mm. money. She's going to trial in 2021 this oh, year. Wow. And a lot of people would say that this is much more interesting than even the Bernie Madoff scandal, wow. which tells you a bit about yeah. it. So they interview one of her family friends and he talks about Elizabeth Holmes' father and how he used to speak a lot about their wasp lineage mm. and the sort of the golden days of, of their family's mm. superiority, I suppose. Mm. And there's a lot of talk about entitlement and charm and <gasps> grandiosity. I thought you were going to tell me that it worked, that it was this amazing scientific thing. <laughs> Just like... No, oh. no. How fascinating. So the company plugged away for about 12 years. They got a deal with Walgreens where you could go in and get your blood testing oh there. Oh, my gosh. And what happened was that a lot of people went in and they were told they were getting this finger mm. prick of blood and that, that was all that was required. And then when they went in to have the blood test, they actually did a traditional method. And they would be told, oh, we just do it uh, to compare or it's just this time the machine's not working or all sorts of things happen like that. I'm not going to tell you what no, happens with it because it is completely fascinating. So it's kind of true crime it's as well. Crime, it's but true. without a murder. Yeah, yeah. Although yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of people who had cancer went to have their blood tests done and got results back that indicated that so there was a lady interviewed who had had a double mastectomy, went to have a test and it showed an elevated hormone and it was wrong. She oh. did not have an elevated hormone level at all. And so Are these doctors in Walgreens or were they just, what, who are these people in yeah. Walgreens doing these tests? <laughs> You're starting it's to. like supermarket science. And, and also how on earth does a medical device like this get released into the market? Uh, anyway, it, it's oh, absolutely I fascinating. Wait. I can't wait. So there's this Greek doctor who's walking on Stanford campus and sees the sign Theranos and thinks, that's an interesting sort of Greek-sounding name. And he goes and investigates and he can find no peer-reviewed papers, almost nothing. And so he then writes an article saying, where is the science proving all of this? And, and, and how did she get to set up at Stanford? <laughs> It is fascinating. Oh, She's obsessed it. with Steve Jobs. She wears the black polo necks. She has an extremely unusual voice. It's a very deep male voice. She sounds to me like a teenage boy whose voice is breaking. It's a mm. very distinctive voice. Mm. Anyway, I'm just fascinated by the people who invested in the company. She had a relationship with this very wealthy guy called Sonny who was much older than her but they didn't disclose that they were in a relationship and he had no background in medical technology at all. She was fated by Bill Clinton. There's audio of Bill Clinton interviewing her to a group and saying, and tell everyone how old you are when you invented the company. And she says, I was 19. And he turns to the audience and says, we're in good hands. Oh, um, <laughs> and it's completely gobsmacking the whole mm. story and it sort of raises that question as to why as a society we fate someone who seems to have made a lot of money on paper she was a multi-billionaire on paper but we don't give the same attention and glowing comments about someone who goes and volunteers for the disadvantaged know, for example where our values are all wrong but also this takes back to the theme of today about the gullibility, gullibility. Really, and and not really drilling down into real facts this whole problem with what's fact and what's not and, and when will we learn i know, will, I know how many of these and really incidents. how can people be blamed really on one level because there is so much nonsense mm. out there mm that sometimes it's hard to wade through the nonsense Very to find hard. the facts. And also if other people are endorsing it. So George Schultz, yes. former Secretary of yeah. State, I think, yeah. she became mm. almost like a family member and then there's a fascinating development with his grandson who goes to work for the company and he becomes a whistleblower oh. and the grandfather mm. takes Elizabeth's side. Can we stop so I can go and listen to it? The grandfather <laughs> takes Elizabeth's side. Oh. So I'm going to watch her trial with mm. great interest because I think she potentially stands to face a 
prison sentence of about 20 years yeah. for fraud. But I should stress she hasn't been convicted of that yet. I don't think the company exists and people have lost their money. There yes. doesn't seem to be any doubt about that. And she certainly recorded saying, I know we made mistakes, but yet the trial will be fascinating. Mm. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. Oh, that's a great so, one. Yeah, that's a that, great one. That is a great one. So that's it from us for today. We hope you've enjoyed our little chat about truth tellers. It's a subject that we could probably talk about for hours. Endlessly. We hope you uh, will join us next week. We've got another fun episode. We've got an episode coming up where it's a real merger of a new release book by a living author and some classics, which is a great combination, we think. So we'll see you then. Bye. Okay, bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. What else have you been diving uh, into, Virginia? No. <laughs> <laughs>